Our reading this morning is from Luke chapter 24. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and, the mother, and Mary the mother of James, and the other women with whom told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them as an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning on uh, this day in which we remember the resurrection of your son. And we pray that you would send your spirit to work in our hearts, uh, that we might receive what you have for us. Father, meet us in this place as you've promised and deal with us. Lord, that we might have our sin, our sorrow, our suffering, our shame caught up in the great story of resurrection. And may it bring newness into our life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, every, uh, everyone knows that uh, there are two types of people in the world. There are those who always forward emails. And there are those who do so reluctantly. Those are the only two types of people. And you know who you are. Some of you are the forwarding people, right? Every email you've gotten, right, you have forwarded along uh, if it was at all forwardable. But others of you are not. And we know who you are because you always preface it with, I don't usually forward emails. But just to make sure that no one confuses you with those types of people, right? Now, there was a forward that I received several years ago. That was a forward of, of, of church uh, communication mistakes, okay, where wording wasn't chosen very carefully or uh, they didn't realize how it would be received. And uh, some of these were pretty great. Uh, one of them said, don't miss the church rummage sale. Please bring items you no longer need from around your house 
Ladies, please bring your husbands. Yeah, it's great. Another Another one read, the sermon this week will be, what is hell? Come hear the choir practice before. Okay. And then, uh, I love this one. Um, Those of you who have children and don't know it, we have a nursery downstairs. Think about that one for a second, okay? Now, the reason why I bring this up is because around Easter a few few years ago, I got forwarded an email from a church uh, that is in the Bay Area, has a pastor named Fred. And uh, the tagline on it was this. Fred is at work making all things new and putting all things right. Fred's the pastor of the church, okay? So you're like scratching your head saying, is this guy a megalomaniac? Like what is going on here? And then it turns out, of course, that uh, somebody, you know, cut and pasted wrong in assembling this email. And uh, it was pretty funny, right? Fred is at work putting, making all things new and putting all things right. But the reason why I bring all this up is this, is that some of us find it just as difficult to believe that God is at work making all things new and putting all things right. Because you look at your life and you're like, for real? It doesn't seem like God is at work here. It doesn't seem like God could be putting things right. It doesn't seem like it's possible that all things could be made new. Where is the proof of this? What evidence do I have to go on that this is the truth? Now, Easter is one of those days in which we're called to celebrate, but our hearts don't always cooperate with the prescribed mood. And I want you to know that you don't have to work yourself into some sort of false joy this morning. Because Easter is meant to stare the worst of the world in the face. Because resurrection is the answer to the longing of all of our hearts. Now, if you're going to actually experience the joy of resurrection, you have to reckon with death. Uh, There is a philosopher who teaches at Emory University. His name is George Yancey. And uh, he wrote an article in the New York Times um, not too long ago called Facing the Fact of My Own Death. And he describes death or the prospect of death is like a haunting over his life. Maybe some of you read this article. Uh, It's pretty depressing. Um, And he's using pretty detailed language about rotting corpses and all these sorts of things that... Uh, that he feels like this prospect of death just hangs over everything I do. It's with me when I kiss my children and tell them that I love them at night. It's with me when I teach my classes. And this is, this is what he said. he said. He said, I make a resolute effort to remind my students that all of us at some point sooner or later will become rotting corpses. That I, that I explain is the great equalizer. No matter how smart, brilliant, wealthy, beautiful, and fit you are, no matter how great your MCAT, your LSAT, your GPA scores, no matter your religious or political orientation, we will all perish. After hearing this, students will often become completely silent. There's a sudden recognition that something has been haunting our joy 
our unquestioned and collective happiness, our sense of permanence, and it is palpable. No matter how many times I've decided to remove the veil, the sting of our collected finitude continues to hit me, along with the reality of bodily decomposition and decay. The unspoken reality of death, which is the haunting background of our lives, shakes my body. I mourn for me and my students and humanity. Sounds like a fun class to take, right? (laughs) But there's an honesty here. There is a seriousness that is admirable. Because what George Jancy is longing for is a hope that can hold up to the worst. That's what Easter is about. A hope that can hold up to the worst. And what the Christian claim is this. It's the only hope that can hold up to the worst is a resurrection hope. If uh, you're new to Christianity, if maybe this is the one time a year that you drop in to a church, or maybe this is your first time ever at a church, one thing you need to know is that the church is a resurrection community. It stakes all its hope on this claim that Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes, if Christ is not raised, then what you are doing here is a waste of time. We're, of all people, to be most pitied. Now, here's what's fascinating. There's about two billion, that's with a B, billion people around the world who identify as Christians. All because of this day, the day of resurrection. And so I want to talk about resurrection this morning. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) And I want to ask three questions. Is it true? Does it matter, really? And how should we respond? So let's let's start first with the truth question. Because that's Paul's claim. It's like, if this didn't really happen, right? Waste of time. Go home. You've got better things to do. But whenever we ask a question, a truth question, right? We have to to recognize that nobody comes to the table without biases, And some of you might be saying like, yeah, that's Christians are just biased in favor of this. They're people of faith. I'm a person of reason. But I I want you to consider for a second that biases apply both ways. Uh, There is a um, British intellectual by the name of A.N. Wilson. If uh, you don't know who he is, he's the author of, of books like Against Religion and Jesus a Life, in which he tries to historically... Uh, tease out the claim that Jesus was just another failed religious revolutionary. There were lots of them. But sometime in the early 2000s, he actually came back to his childhood faith. And he began to publicly reflect on his conversion in a few different articles he wrote. And this is what he said, For much of my life, I too have been one who did not believe. It was in my youth that I began to wonder how much of the Easter story I accepted. And in my 30s, I lost any religious belief whatsoever. Like many people who lost faith, I felt anger with myself for having been conned by such a story. And then he goes on. Why did I, along with so many others, become so dismissive of Christianity? Like most educated people in Britain and Northern Europe... I had grown up in a culture that is overwhelmingly secular and anti-religious. Universities, broadcasters, and media generally are not 
merely non-religious, they're positively anti. To my shame, I believe it was this that made me lose faith and heart in my youth. It felt so uncool to be religious. With the mentality of a child in the playground, I felt at some visceral level that being religious was unsexy. Like having spots or wearing specks. That's a British phrase, by the way. But think about what he said. It felt so uncool to be religious. Would you be willing to consider that the possibility that that the reason why resurrection doesn't seem plausible to you is because not of great intellectual arguments you've heard, but of attitudes that you've received. A fear that it will make you look stupid or backward or primitive, unenlightened, ridiculous. See, there's a whole lot at stake in this claim. Our personal autonomy, our perceived right to live as we please. Like, isn't it worth checking out and pushing against your biases? Now, here's... Here's what we're looking at this morning. is a claim of an empty tomb and a claim of appearances of Jesus. And those two things have to be accounted for. You, you need some sort of explanation for them. If you're going to seriously wrestle with the claim of resurrection. And I want to start with this. First century people believed the same thing you and I believe. Which is that dead people stay dead. Okay, that's, that's actually a really important point. That's why the women who are showing up on Sunday morning are bringing their spices and ointments that they've prepared because they were expecting to find Jesus' body in the tomb. No one was expecting him to be alive. That wasn't on their radar. And what we read in verses 2 and 3 is, is they found the stone rolled away from the tomb But they did not find the body of Christ. They came expecting the tomb to be full. But what they found was that it was empty. And then they see two dazzling figures who appear to them. They say, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Okay, now, this claim of the empty tomb is a a claim that is not only found in the Gospel of Luke... It's found in all of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And it's not only found there, it's found in the early letters that circulated in the Christian church. And notice what the claim is. It's not a claim that Jesus' spirit lived on in a Christian community, but that his body rose from the dead. This isn't... Uh, This isn't an idea of uh, resuscitation. It is a claim of resurrection from the dead. And the first component of it is that the body isn't there. And in fact, Luke is paying careful attention to the details. Because the women are invited to go in and investigate. And as they go in, what they discover is grave clothes. Lying there, folded. Which if the body was stolen, you can't imagine that someone would take the time to unwrap him, fold them nicely, and put them in there. And of course, they're stunned and they're shocked. Because what they had expected turned out to not be the case at all. And that is, nobody 
empty tomb. Now look, we have all sorts of ways in which we want to say, yeah, but, right? Yeah, but. And uh, I want to talk about a few of those. Some of us um, have what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. We say, of course we can't take this seriously because those people lived a long time ago. Right? And they were dumb. They were gullible. These sorts of stories just circulated like crazy. And in many ways, that's intellectually lazy. It's just an easy way to try to dismiss it. But ancient peoples believe dead people stayed dead. There's some reason that they're making this kind of claim. And also, it's, it's a bit historically silly. Because if you go back and look at the evidence from the first century, what you discover is this. People weren't in any way expecting anyone to raise from the dead. In the Greco-Roman world, if your spirit got out of your body, you didn't want it back. That was liberation. And in the Jewish mindset... Some believed that there would be a grand resurrection at the end, and it would mean the renewal of the whole world, but no one thought that would happen in the middle of history, and it would happen to one person alone. You can read about this in N.T. Wright's 700-page volume, The Resurrection of the Son of God, if that's the kind of thing you're into. But the point is this is the idea that everyone was just dumb and ready to believe, right, is not the case at all when you look at the evidence of history itself. And on top of that, when you look at this text, even the disciples disbelieved the story when they first heard it. It says, women found the tomb empty. They ran back to tell the 11. And you know what the 11 thought? This is an idle tale. This is nonsense. There's no way that this is the case. They were skeptical. So the idea that we just are dealing with a bunch of gullible people who lived long ago is not one that holds up to examination. But here's the second thing. Some people would just say, well, the whole thing is made up. It's just just made up by people who lived much later. But that, that has some serious problems to it. One of the problems is this. Do you know who the first witnesses of the empty tomb were, according to all four of the Gospels? It was women. And sad as it is to say, in the first century world, the testimony of women was not highly regarded. In fact, in some cases, it was not even admissible in court. So think about this for a second. If you're making up a story... Why do you include this detail? Why do you record that it was women who were honored to be the first witnesses of the empty tomb? You do it because that's how it happened. If you're making it up, it's of no advantage. In fact, it's a disadvantage to you. And so if you want to deal with the real details and the real evidence, right, you, you need to wrestle with that. And Luke actually names names. And by the way, if this is just made up by some people living uh, in the, uh, the first century, it makes no sense of the fact that the earliest Christians were willing to die for their faith. People will, people will die for what they believe to be true. But it strains credulity to believe someone would die for something that they made up. 
If you're about to have your eyes gouged out and your throat cut up, right, that's probably the best time to fess up. (laughs) Sorry, guys, made this up. As Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, said, he was like, I believe those witnesses who are willing to have their throats cut. That it's made up is something that doesn't hold up to examination. But here's my favorite. People say, well, of course, we're looking at these texts, but uh, these are probably like later uh, legends that have grown. Like something was kind of cool about Jesus, but, you know, it just sort of got embellished and it grew. Uh, and and it, it's kind of like, you know, one of those children's game of telephone. Y'all ever play that game? You know, where a kid whispers to one kid and then that kid whispers to the next kid and it just sort of goes around until finally at the end you get this mangled mess of a message. And some people look at the stories that we have in the Gospels as, 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 as just legendary accretions that have grown. It's like a game of telephone. Like, Jesus was pretty cool. And then someone said, like, oh, no, like, he's, he's the son of God. Oh, yeah, and then he rose from the dead. But here's, here's the problem. The testimony and witness of the empty tomb goes back way too early for that to ever be the case. And by the way, it's not just the Gospels. It's found in the letters of the Apostle Paul. And those letters contain creeds and confessions of the early Christian community that some scholars have traced back to within years of this event. And in fact, if you actually look at the evidence, it moves in the opposite direction. Do you know what I mean by that? I mean... Stuff that's written in the 2nd and 3rd century, those are the things where Jesus is just some spirit being floating around. But the earliest evidence is a claim to a bodily resurrection from the dead and the claim of an empty tomb. Okay, look, we could talk about this for forever. I've spent just a few minutes. If you want to know more, come to Exploring Christianity uh, or talk. let's talk offline. But it's important to grapple with. And it's not just the empty tomb, it's the appearances of Jesus. The end of our text this morning, we see Jesus showing up in the upper room, appearing to his disciples. This is one of many instances in which Jesus appeared bodily and said, put your fingers in my wounds and let me have some fish to eat. Right? And walk with me along the shoreline, Peter, as we have a talk. And Paul even says that he appeared to 500 People at once. And these claims, once again, go back early. They're things that you have to wrestle with. That you have to explain. You have to say, like, what was it that gave rise to this claim of an empty tomb, this claim of appearances of the risen Jesus? And let me add one last thing on top of this. You have to account somehow for the rise of the early church. This community that exploded on the scene in the Roman Empire and turned it upside down. There is an historian at Yale University. His name is Wayne Meeks. And he says this. He says, never in so short a time has any other religious faith, or for that matter, any other set of ideas, religious, political, or otherwise, without the aid of physical force, achieved so commanding a position in such a short time in such an important society. What, 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 what is Wayne Meeks referring to? He's referring to the radical change that happened in this community called the church in the first century. 
that from an historical perspective is like overnight. And what is, he's referring to things like this. A community of Jewish people who for centuries had practiced Sabbath suddenly changed the day on which they meet for worship. A community that for centuries had offered sacrifices at the temple suddenly stopped offering sacrifices. A community that for centuries had excluded the Gentiles from admission into their society without circumcision suddenly is sharing a table with them. And by the way, these communities, Jews and Gentiles, they were deeply hostile to one another. And almost overnight, all of that changes. Do you know what the resounding, consistent, without exception claim was? We're doing this because Jesus died and rose from the dead. And formed a new humanity. Now look, there's just not a lot of other explanations offered To account for these things. The empty tomb. The appearances of Jesus. The rise of the early church. And I know that this alone will convince no one to follow Jesus. To just talk about this. But you know what it it at least does? Is it gives you pause to say. I can't dismiss this. As just a myth. Or as just some sort of silly notion. As Tim Keller writes in his... um, recent article in Christianity Today, a failure to provide a historically plausible alternative explanation for the eyewitness accounts and the revolutionary overnight worldview change of thousands of Jews is not being more scientific. It is being less so. You don't have to get a lobotomy to become a Christian. There are good, good reasons to believe that it's true. Now, some of you right now, you've, you've tuned out because for whatever reason, this isn't engaging to you. You kind of believe it's true already. And you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. But does it really matter? Does it really matter? See, it's one thing to believe that it happened. It's another thing to know why you should care. And here's why you and I should care. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. And it takes the rest of the New Testament to begin spelling that out. But let's begin where Jesus begins. If you notice in verse 44 of our text this morning, when Jesus appears in the upper room to his disciples, this is what he says. This is what I kept telling you. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. You want to know why the resurrection of Jesus matters? It is the confirmation that God keeps his promises. See, Jesus isn't simply talking about a prediction here or there in the Old Testament. He's talking about the whole story of Scripture finding its fulfillment in him. Those sacrifices in the temple in the Old Testament, they point to him and his ultimate sacrifice. Those visions in the prophets of this servant triumphing over sin and death through suffering, right? they point to Jesus And his death and resurrection. Those promises of a forever king who saves his people, they point to Jesus, the true and everlasting king, right? Who conquers sin and death. All the promises that God makes find their yes 
and their amen in Jesus. That's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.20. So let me break this down for us. How do you know that God will heal the world? You know because of the resurrection of Jesus. How do you know that your life, with all its messiness and twistiness, will be renewed? You know because of the resurrection of Jesus. How do you know that death won't have the final word? You know because of the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is the declaration of his triumph over sin and death. It is his victory dance. It is his spiking of the football in the end zone. Right? It's a celebration moment. The Bible calls it his coronation day. Right? This is the true king. This is the right king. He's the one who defeats the real enemies. And I, think this out. Like, What is the most powerful tool that sin and evil have in the world? Do you know what it is? It's death. It's death. And apart from Jesus, death is undefeated. We, it's the thing we are winless against. Silicon Valley VCs. Oh, for the thousands against death. Okay? Ivy League grads. Oh, for the tens of thousands. Humanity as a whole. Oh, for the begillions. And yes, I just made up a word, right? But Jesus defeated death, which means he rules and reigns over everything. And his victory is the confirmation that God is a promise keeper. He makes good on his word. And this has some implications for you and me. One of the implications is this. It's forgiveness of sins. That's the message that Jesus sends his disciples to preach. You notice that? He's like, I've been raised from the dead. This is what I've been telling you the whole time. This is a fulfillment of God's promises. And now go and proclaim the forgiveness of sins in my name to all nations, which means everyone. Don't you find it fascinating that these are some of the first words out of Jesus' mouth? But how beautiful that is. Because we desperately need to hear them. Do you know what forgiveness is? Really? It is love for you at your worst. Most of us experience love as we are presenting the best version of ourselves. The prettiest, funniest, smartest, right? Best smelling version of ourselves. And we get the love. But forgiveness brings the experience of love to us at our worst. You don't often think of the resurrection of Jesus as connected to the forgiveness of sins. But when you read the rest of the New Testament, you discover that it is. Paul writes in Romans 4.25, He was delivered over to death for our trespasses. And he was raised for our, uh, our justification. Forgiveness of sins. Record of righteousness given to us. When you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says, if Christ be not raised from the dead, you are still in your sins. But flip that around. If he is raised and you are in Christ, you are no longer in your sins. It's a declaration of forgiveness pronounced over us. The resurrection is like God's receipt given to us that says, paid in full all your sins through the death of my son.
Which means that in the resurrection of Jesus, you and I find an answer to our failures. You know, this was the experience of Peter the Apostle. We've looked at him a good bit over the last few weeks. Remember, Peter boasted big about his loyalty to Jesus and how he would never, ever, ever forsake him. But that was on a Thursday night. Peter denied him three times before Friday got out of bed. And then hearing of Jesus' resurrection, because we're told in our text that when Peter heard, he ran to the tomb. And he saw that it was empty. But that could have been a terrifying experience for him. He'd be like, oh no, he's coming back to get me, right? But when the risen, risen Jesus showed up in Peter's life, he tenderly restored him. And what Peter discovered in the risen Jesus was an answer to his sins and failures. This was the experience of the Apostle Paul. He'd been a persecutor of the church. But when he met the risen Jesus, he found forgiveness in his name. And in Acts 13, he goes into this synagogue in a place called Pisidian Antioch. And he declares the message of salvation, saying what God promised to the fathers, he has fulfilled to us by raising Jesus from the dead. And he calls it good news. Good news because it brings forgiveness of sin and freedom. What Paul discovered in the risen Jesus is an answer to his sins and failures. The resurrection tells you that God won't ask you to audition for his love. Or try to make you make up for your past. He erases your shame and he gives you a new record of righteousness. Resurrection guaranteed. Right? That is the message that turned the first century world up down. Upside down. Inside out. And it's not just forgiveness It's also newness of life, right? If sin has been defeated, that means it no longer reigns over you. And what the New Testament authors say is that somehow when we believe in Jesus, we die and rise with him. That there is a new life to live. As Paul writes in Romans 6, 4, we were buried with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Being united to him by faith means that we have power to live a new life. You know, Christians have a word for that. Maybe you're unfamiliar with it, but it's called sanctification, right? Growing in holiness. And here's the thing. Sanctification isn't a paint-by-numbers discipline, okay? It is communion with the risen Lord. It is experiencing the power of the resurrected Christ working in you. Can you, th- can you imagine the possibilities for real change in your life? Right? Real newness. Real difference. You can never give up no matter what you've been labeled. Right? Some of you, you bear the mark. You've been identified as a liar or a traitor or a fake. You've been called unreliable, weak, right? Depressed and never getting over it. Volatile, judgmental, hypocritical, lost cause, hopeless case. Right? Waste of time. The resurrection says to you, newness is yours. If Jesus triumphed over death, I think he can deal with your business. The resurrection means forgiveness and it means newness. But you know what else it means? It means joy 
forever. You know, in a naturalistic worldview, evil, suffering, and death, they're the main storyline. The senseless savagery is the progress. Death is just part of the the, the senseless show. But the resurrection comes and says, no, 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 no. These aren't the main storyline. A new world is coming. It has already begun in the resurrection of Jesus. All things will be made new. And it will mean joy forever for all of God's people. When you read the letters of the New Testament, you find that the resurrection shaped the lives of early Christians as much as anything else. Paul called the resurrection the first fruits. You know what first fruits are? Right? They're the thing that makes your future visible. So you get a first fruits of grapes or olives. It's a signal to you, right? This isn't the only bushel or basket of grapes and olives. It's the first of a whole bunch more. Jesus raised from the dead isn't the only one who will be raised. He's the first of a whole bunch more. A resurrection harvest to come. And early Christians began to look at their lives bookended by these two resurrections. On the one hand was Jesus' resurrection. The assurance of our hope. right? The confidence, the confirmation that God is a promise keeper. And the second was their own resurrection still to come when Jesus would return. And Paul would write things like, Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Don't you want that in your life? Don't you want to know that your labor is not in vain? That it adds up to something ultimately? That it means something? That even if it dies, right, it gets raised. And it gets cleansed and sanitized and contributes to the glory of new creation, right? That is a joy that can sustain you in the midst of the worst. And when the New Testament draws our hearts to what it will look like, what it will feel like, what it will be like, right? In the grand resurrection, we hear all the great no mores, right? No more holocausts. No more cancer, No more shame, no more starvation, no more war, no more loneliness, no more suffering, no more sin, no more death. And if this is true, this is a hope that can hold up to the worst. That is the destiny of everyone who belongs to Jesus Christ. So here's the question, how should we respond to this? A little over uh, 10 years ago, Uh, There was an article by James Martin that was in Slate.com, and it was called Happy Crossmas. Okay? And, uh, yeah, real cute. And uh, he's comparing this, you know, this commercialization of Christmas and how easy it is to commercialize with the commercialization of Easter. Right? Commercialization of Christmas is easy, right? The sweet little baby, the angels, the shepherds, you know, all the scenes like it feels congruent with the way it's sort of marketed in this sentimental kind of way. And he was like, but the cross and the resurrection like has had a harder time being commercialized. So you have like bunnies and eggs and you're kind of like, I don't know what this has to do with that. And, and, and what he says is this, unlike Christmas, Easter resists a noncommittal response. Even agnostics and atheists 
can accept the general outlines of the Christmas story with little danger to their worldview. But Easter demands a response. It's hard for a non-Christian to say, yes, I believe that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified, was buried, died, and rose from the dead. That's not something you can believe without some serious ramifications. Easter is an event that demands a yes or no. There is no whatever. So which is it? Is it yes or is it no? If you say no, you don't really need to worry about all the other things that bother you about Christianity. You can just discard them. You can take what you like. You can leave what you don't. Who cares anyways? But if you say yes, then everything should change. And that's going to mean at least two things. The first is worship. You will worship no matter what. You will find something to orient your life around that you attribute ultimate value and significance to. You will make sacrifices for it. You will spend your life in devotion to it. And what the resurrection of Jesus demands is that it be Jesus as Lord. You don't run your life. Jesus is Lord. He deserves your allegiance. And you can't give in to despair because Jesus rose from the dead. The new world has invaded the old. Your present sufferings won't last forever. And that is a reason to give him praise. That's what the early Christians did as they gathered into these resurrection communities, as they devoted their life to Jesus. They honored him, they praised him, they followed him, they listened to his word, they trusted his promises because the resurrection was the confirmation and the guarantee the new world is on its way. And this led to the second thing, mission. You notice that all the gospels end with a missionary note, Jesus sending his disciples out like on, on mission. And in here in the Gospel of Luke, he tells them, I'm going to actually send my spirit to equip you for this work. I'm going to give you power from on high. That's resurrection power. Resurrection power is the power that makes dead things come to alive. Dead marriages, dead friendships, dead relationships, dead ends when all hope seems lost. And you're going into the world to all the dead places and you're going to proclaim forgiveness of sins in my name. And the power of resurrection to make things new. But here's a little twist, okay? Listen carefully. If you want to know this power, you got to get uncomfortable. you got to pick up your cross. you got to follow Jesus. you got to give your life away. The things that God calls us to on mission often feel like death. Forgiving someone who hurt you. Giving away in your money in a, in, a, in a way that really pinches. Keeping your word even when it costs you greatly. Staying faithful to your marriage, even when it feels like the end of happiness. Remaining steadfast, even if it seems you're going to lose. That's terrifying stuff that we want to run from. But it comes as good news that God is a God who raises the dead. And as one of my friends who's also a pastor says, if you spend your life avoiding things that feel like death, you will never know the power of resurrection. Because you primarily experience it in those places. Do you know what this produced in the earliest Christians? 
It, it produced what George Weigel called the Easter effect. Early Christians giving away their money for the poor and the destitute. Radical self-denial amongst the earliest healthcare workers in response to the plagues. And you could go on throughout history. This energized the abolitionist movement in the 18th century. This animated the German resistance to the Nazi regime in the 21st century, right? This, in the, in the 20th century. This is what was underneath the civil rights movement in our own country. It's all being driven by the tremendous sacrifice of those who, and this is what Weigel says, were living as if they knew the outcome of history. Because they did. Look, it is never clear how this or that moment is going to go in your life. But what is certain is, if you belong to Jesus, it is headed to new creation. Your labor is not in vain. And Jesus calls you to go into the world and bear witness to that. You know, humans can't live without hope. Right? This is the point of Viktor Frankl's book, if you've, ever, if you've ever read that. Someone who was in a Nazi prison camp. And deliberated about the need for hope. The soul has to feed on hope. But the hope we need is a hope that can hold up against the worst of the world. And the worst of the world is death. You know, the season of Lent, which leads up to Easter, begins on Ash Wednesday. And on Ash Wednesday, we make a confession every year. I am a sinner and I'm going to die. And we put the ashes on our head, reminding of our, ourselves of our mortality in our sinfulness. But we also hear these words pronounced over us. Count yourself dead to sin and alive with Christ. Is that wishful thinking? Is that an empty hope? The resurrection of Jesus says, no, it is not. You have been raised with Christ and you will be raised to glory on that final day. And when you know how the story ends, it changes everything about how you live. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you. We thank you for this day in which we remember the resurrection of your son. And though our hearts can't always cooperate with the prescribed mood, we thank you that ultimately it is your action, your activity you're saving, Lord, that we rest in, not our feelings. So, Lord, would you work this into our hearts? Would you open our eyes? Would you soften our souls that we might receive the good news of the resurrection of Jesus? And may it change us from people who live only for ourselves to people who live for you and for the sake of others. God, we need your spirit to be at work in us and so we ask that you would do that for your glory, for our good, and for the good of the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.